Welcome back to episode two of WNBA Retrospect, a historical WNBA scouting series. Today we'll discuss Margot Didic, the number one WNBA's all-time block leader and the tallest player in league history at 7'2". But first, if you missed last week's episode, myself and M discussed USC's Tina Thompson, an all-time great and the league's first number one draft pick. That episode will be available in the description below. Baltimore's basketball starts now. Ogumba Wallet for the win! You are Locked On Women's Basketball. Your daily podcast on women's basketball. Welcome. You are Locked On Women's Basketball. Thanks for making us your first listen today. My name is Senator Cruz, and I'm your Saturday host covering prospect scouting and women's basketball at large. I'm joined by my co-host, M. Adler and Lincoln Schaefer. M. covers WBA in the New York market with a focus on player development and analysis at thenexthoops.com. Lincoln is an indispensable part of our scouting team. You can find him on Twitter at Dovienia underscore. Like I said, the subject of our conversation today is Polish center Marco Didik. So let's take you back to the 1998 WNBA draft. Didik, a 24-year-old 7-2 post, previously turned out an opportunity to declare for the inaugural 1997 WNBA draft to rest her body after a grueling season, a grueling overseas season in Europe. Didik was selected with the number one pick by the Utah Stars in the 1998 draft ahead of passing savant Tina Pinichero. So first, for you, M, why was she the number one pick, and why was it because she's 7'2"? <laughs> you really, you really, th- th- really throw me an opportunity to, to, to go on a nice inf- informative session for the audience here. No, I mean, look, it's one thing to be, like, tall and not be able to do anything with it. I mean, we've seen Taco fall at the Boston Celtic great, but it's another thing to be tall and to like actually have an effect. And we'll get into this uh, a little later in the show, just in terms of you know what you know, each of us sees that effect as having been. But we're talking about a player who is effective and is able to play on the court and through Euroleague, obviously a high level of competition, especially for those days. We talked about last week, you know, if you remember, we talked about why you know there were some matchups uh somewhat often for tina thompson even lisa leslie before her at usc where the level of competition wasn't you know what we see today and you can't really judge it by the same standards as face prospects and margo didek you're in EuroLeague; it's not the same level of play as it's today but it is still that version of professional players like you said coming into this draft it's not like she was just tall and couldn't do anything with it like i mentioned this is functional height she in the in the couple years preceding this draft she was putting up about 15 points a game in the early playoffs combining that with uh, about nine rebounds and that one and a half assists per game which again for someone who is pretty much just the defender in terms of the biggest strengths being able to put up those numbers and being able to be that effective is a real accomplishment yeah like to have that kind of height, um, especially in an era before defensive three seconds, which we've talked about a little um, off camera, is that like before there were rules in place to keep people from just standing under the rim and blocking as many shots as they could. That that's what she was really good at, and that's what the rules allowed her to do uh, defensively. So that kind of defensive presence is like. One of the big things that uh, brought value to teams that she played for to keep people like away from the rim is a really valuable skill to have. So when you have someone who's 
generously eight inches taller than everyone else on the court, it's going to make a huge difference uh, in the paint on both ends, but especially defensively for someone like Margot Didic. And I'd argue, I'd argue the most important part of that isn't just you know being able to keep defenses honest enough to stick uh, defensively and be able to uh, use that, but the fact that she was, for her WNBA career, she ended up a 79% free throw shooter. And, I mean, you can see this when you look at really any of her tape. It's it's a good jumper form. And I think, you know, there's a lot of things that we can get into, and probably will, about, you know, the different aspects of her game and how those translated to the WNBA back then and how, and I think more interestingly, what the conversation would be right now with current rules. Uh, but I think, you know, for her time, she was a super effective defender as Lincoln, as you just said, and that's the Bulls thing. And you see this especially with uh, men's basketball as well. Um, basically, in the 90s, you had a lot of had a lot of great post defenders who were essentially immobilized by the mid-2000s and by basically 2013, 2014. They couldn't hang. They, they would get absolutely played off the court. And I think that's the interesting thing. And in, when you watch some of uh, Marco's tape in Utah, the, the franchise that would become San Antonio, the times they make the playoffs, you can see when it really comes down to it, when she has to go against uh, teams that are able to operate, you know, these aren't offenses that are capable of, you know, they're capable of, but they don't frequently exploit switches and force them and try to play players off the court. That's just not a thing back then. You're trying to think people did. But you can see when every time she has to defend a player who's basically able to operate in space, there is basically no chance for her. And that becomes a huge issue with Utah uh, at different points in the playoffs. And, you know, if, uh, you know, I know it's kind of far-fetched to have a center for the Utah franchise who is an excellent rim protector but can't do anything in space when it comes to the playoffs, and that pre presents a team-building question for their team. But, you know, just, just bear with me. And it becomes an interesting thing, I think, in evaluating her game, both in, both in like I said, translating to today, but also asking ourselves, like, what is the value not just to winning games, period, but to winning specific games in the playoffs that you're looking for with this kind of skill set. And I think this week and next week, we are going to have some very interesting and probably different answers to those questions. Yeah, so sort of on that note, um, going back to what she did um, pre-draft, watching her film, seven foot two, seven foot wingspan, that's another thing, somehow negative wingspan, on that seven no, two. Still the long wingspan. It's so funny. It's still but, it, it's still probably the longest wingspan in the W at that time. But like still. Yeah, but I think if I was scouting at the time, my biggest question would probably still be just how her body would withstand a long career, considering that she did play overseas as well, right? So that probably would have kept me a little bit hesitant um, at the time, you know, just considering. Yeah, she's seven two. Um, another part of that was. I don't think they realized she was seven two either. Like I think originally they thought she was six foot seven. So I don't think yeah, they. I, think I I read that in, a, in an article from um, back in the day, and they, they they thought she was six seven, and they didn't realize she was seven two. I don't think until she came over for like pre draft camp. Yeah, in the like media guides, in in like the media guides in Europe, uh, I read that she was listed at six foot six in uh, when she played for Borges in France in um, just. The absurdity of that is a little funny to me because if you see her on the court at all, she's significantly taller than everyone else 
and uh, that's just that's not what six six looks like on a basketball court. <laughs> imagine going to imagine like imagine taking a transatlantic flight to go do some international scouting, and you see on your notes you're like, oh, there's a six foot six player here who averages a bunch of blocks and can shoot well from the line. I wonder what that looks like. And you look up, and it's just seven foot two Marco Tadek. <laughs> and that's the yeah. I mean, Hunter, it's funny you mentioned the the durability question. I mean, I think for anyone with that kind of size, it becomes a question. The the interesting thing to me, at least on that note, is when we think about, I mean, when we think about outlier size, my general translation between men's basketball and women's basketball, NBA, WNBA, just sort of prototypical sizes, it's about, I think, usually five or six inches, give or take, in terms of the difference between W and uh, NBA. So Margo Didek at seven foot two is about the equivalent of an NBA center who's seven, seven or seven, eight. Uh, for reference, that's the tallest re relative relative to Lee. That is the tallest American professional basketball player ever, and she fills out the frame for the most part. Like you know, there's limits here. She's not she's not going to look yoked, but like this isn't. But like she doesn't look like Manu Ball. She doesn't look like any of the Bulls or the Falls. It's really it's really interesting how that happens there. Um, but I think to me the biggest question, and this is what I was getting at before, especially when we got to talking about the playoffs, is as someone who is so effective within the rules of being able to camp out in the paint, but someone who has had a struggle of an offensive, of an offensive process or finishing, to be honest, she, he, this bears out in her career, but you can see it in the EuroLeague tape we looked at there. The, the finishing's bad. It's like shockingly bad for someone that big. The, you see it a couple times and it pops up at more as you watch the WNBA tape, but the, her hands are surprisingly weak. Uh, in terms of rebounding, and she puts up she puts up pretty pedestrian offensive rebounding numbers in the WNBA across her career, which is interesting because in terms of sort of the value creation of rebounding, defensive rebounding is very valuable, but it's not extraordinarily valuable at an individual level. It's more, and it's a lot harder to suss out whether you're adding much rebounding to your team because for the most part, an offensive rebound that 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 you get is an offensive rebound that without you, your team probably wouldn't have had. Whereas a defensive rebound that you get without you, your team probably would have had. And there's a smaller chance that the other team would have turned it into an offensive board. So it's harder to assess that value there, but it is telling to me that she was an elite defensive rebounder and a pedestrian offensive rebounder. And I think that's what, again, what you get into in terms of the tape is like the size is excellent in terms of being able to protect the paint. That's excellent as well. Just in terms of being an imposing physical presence. But in terms of you know relatively bad finishing, weaker hands, and one thing that really stood out to me was just Hunter, you can talk about this more after the break, but with how foul prone she was, there are things that you can see in her game where it is surprising how much of her rim protection is not actually rim protection so much as it is rim deterrence. Let me tell you about better help. Whether you're dealing with decisions around your career, relationships, or anything else, therapy helps you stay connected to what you really want to really want while you navigate life so you can move forward with confidence and excitement. If you're if you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. 
Let therapy be your map to better help. Visit better, betterhelp.com slash locked on NBA today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash locked on NBA. So um, to get back into it, Margo Didic, our conversation today, the tallest center in WNBA history at 7'2", 7'2", wingspan. Before we talk about how her WNBA career transpired, um, what we did last week was we gave our scouting grade. If we were evaluating the player at the time, how would we grade them out um, on our 2080 scale? Um, and you can explain that a little bit more, but last week we had – Tina Thompson at a 60 grade, which basically means we view that as like an all-star caliber player, um, just from what we saw on tape pre pre WNBA draft. Be specific. Yeah. Yes. So for Margot, where do you guys fall um, with her game? I'll give it to you first, Lincoln. For me, um, it's it's interesting because I think that she brings a lot of value in the paint defensively, and brings uh, a lot of value in some certain ways, but has obvious shortcomings. So in that mold, we have, uh, there's a lot of players that are like that. And I'm, I think that I'd lean somewhere between like around a 45 or a 50 for my grade. That's like clearly brings value to a WNBA team, but has obvious flaws that will keep her from becoming like, an MVP level player. That's so I'd, I'd go either a 45 or a 50, I think. And for reference for listeners, a 45. So 45 is essentially an average level professional WNBA player. So that means a top end of the bench player. So on a good team, that's your number six or number seven in the rotation on a bad team. That's a starter. 50 is an above average uh, rotation player. Uh, so that's an average starter. Um, yeah, for me, it's very interesting, as I was sort of alluding to. Like I said, in terms of the Eurotape, because um, we'll get to a W career in a second, in terms of the Eurotape, as I was saying, with the rim protection, one of the things that stands out is that she makes so many mistakes with her form. It looks like someone who, and I know this isn't true, which makes it a little more worrisome if you're an amateur scout then, it, it looks like she basically picked up a basketball maybe two or three years prior, the sort of like Joel and the one year in college thing, uh, where like her hips aren't moving in the correct direction most of the time. She's relying a lot on her arms. And what that really means is she's committing a heck of a lot of fouls. Uh, and the question is essentially how much can you improve that given her extraordinary propensity for it, her really, really lacking ability to, to, to defend outside of the, the restricted area. But what is that worth in terms of the weight versus like the psychological rim deterrence? Because because I, I know you can attest to this in watching in, in watching the the Euro game. No one, very few people are going to attack her because there's so much like psychological factor of looking at a player who is seven two right in your way and saying, mm, "I'm not, I'm not doing that." I, I think it's interesting given that we can we can observe and we can quant and we can also quantify so much in terms of our scouting, even back in the day and translating it to what we can do now, we can do so much with that in, but there are still some things that we can't. And I think in this, it's similar to like in baseball, when you're trying to like evaluate a catcher, we can now quantify how good their framing is, but, but we can't quantify their like game management for pitchers, which is still super important. So to me, that's the gray area here we're working with. 
I'm a little bit lower than Lincoln. I would probably say, I would, I would probably say just a 45. So I'm in a similar place, but that's a 45 given the rules of, you know, 1998. Well, really most of the 2000s. Um, I have those concerns. Uh, we'll talk about W career in a second, but I think, yeah, 45 at the time. Hunter, I'm interested in not only what you would give her in 98, but what you'd give her today. Okay, so when you pair the psychological part of just being 7'2", people don't want to drive into her, pair that with the three-second rule, that puts her value of what she did then like way more than now. Like what she did then just, it wouldn't, it wouldn't work um, given the rules. So I agree. I would say 45 is probably the safe part there. If she had more coordination and like, if she had better, just better defensive instincts and stuff like that and used her size a little bit better, I would say 50, but yeah, just the size in general, 45, I think that's like really good rotation caliber player and as we found out she probably exceeded that 45 she was probably closer to 50 based on what she did in her yeah. NBA career yeah frankly even like a minor improvement to her general coordination right. outside the outside the three feet would would have given her like a 55 for me what would you have given her today if you saw this today, prospect at like at like mississippi state 30 i think 30 is probably what i would give that's her. that's exactly where i would have been yep just like we see with players like um Camille Cardoso is someone that's a big prospect, but I think with Camille, you're getting more ways than one. Yeah, I think just you're getting a tall. I'm calling her tall, to be clear. I just heard that out of my mouth. She's very tall. She has long <laughs> arms. That's my point. Yeah, I just think in general, like I, I don't think you can get higher than 30, given some of the stuff she did. Like she, she had a couple possessions, um, Margo that is, where she just couldn't close out at all. Like her mm. closeout instincts were super slow. So I don't think you can really play her more than like 15 minutes on a good night. Um, and based on how the rules were then, even given the defensive rules and her staying in the paint, she was still picking up fouls, like a crazy, crazy amount. D during her prime, which was basically her second year in the league to, mm -hmm. I, I want to say basically her eighth or ninth, that's about age 25 to 34, basically, was was – I think clearly her prime. Even then, she was playing a solid only 24 and a half minutes a game in that span. And back then, it was even less common that you would have uh, sort of the middle of your bench get that many minutes, especially you know, backing up a number one overall number one overall pick. One of the things that's interesting to me, her, her, her defensive numbers for obvious reasons are real standout. Uh, positive residual uh, has the only has the only uh, wins above replacement metric for women's basketball. Um, we, we occasionally, sometimes somebody will make an RAPM. It's not that common, but for the WNBA, positive residual has, has a wins above replacement, uh, model. And during her prime, her average wins above replacement was, uh, about two per season, which is good. That's equivalent to back then basically being the 30th best player in the league, 30th to 35th best player in the league on a given season. But the interesting thing is in only two of those years, was she basically above replacement level offensively? And sometimes she was well below it. But for the most part, you see these pretty big defensive scores. And, you know, that's what you get on a, on that limited basis in the regular season. And so you have to sort of wonder, if you're a GM, you have to wonder, you have to ask yourself what the value is you're getting out of that. And I think the biggest thing in comparing her to the player that 
gets drafted right behind her is essentially how you can build a team with slash around that. And to me, I think I find that the most interesting question. Number one concern with like transitioning to the modern game would be the mobility, uh, especially defensively, because there's so many fours and fives now that are incredibly quick that are really good with the ball in their hands, putting the ball on the floor. And uh, I just don't think she'd be able to stay in front of hardly any of the starting centers in the league today. And my other concern is the lack of force that she plays with offensively. Uh, she's seven foot two and on the block posting up someone that's like maybe six, three and settling for a lot of fadeaways, a lot of like pushed back. Against, strong, yeah. against players yeah. who are even of decent front court strength. Which is kind of definitely weird. a concern. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that those would be like my biggest concerns with her game uh, translating to the modern era, and it's definitely a concern uh, then, too. All right, so let's go to a break, and then we're going to talk about finish up with Margot, and then also get into one more player from this time that uh, caught M's eye. All right, so based on what we saw from Margo, um, let's get into some comparisons. Um, do you guys have any comparisons from what you've seen uh, from the film to players nowadays uh, on the men's or women's side? I will let Lincoln go first because I had one and now I can't remember it. Uh, so the, the obvious comparison on the women's side would be like kind of uh, a slightly more paint-bound version of New York Liberty backup Hanzu where you have the obvious comparison of being really tall and having a fairly good shooting touch. But uh, the, the difference is that um, Margo's a significantly better shot blocker. Um, the men's comparisons that I thought of were kind of like a diet version of Kristaps Porzingis without shooting threes. The um, <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's not quite the same kind of player, but the, there's a couple things that remind me of the, the there's like similarities between their game, mostly uh, having a foot height advantage and being unable to make any progress on a post step. And then the, um, the, the closer in height comparison and uh, statistical impact on the men's side would be George Mirasan, the um, tallest player in NBA history who um, played uh, actually, their careers overlapped a little bit. He played in the mid-90s and early 2000s for the uh, Washington Bullets and the New York Net- New Jersey Nets um, from 1993 to 2002. 7'7", won a most improved player in 1996, and um, had the kind of similar around 10 points and 6.5 and rebounds per game. So it's like a similar um, statistical box score impact, but he uh, was the th- second pick of the third of it was the third pick of the second round instead of the first overall pick um out of romania in 1993 so those are the um comparisons that i that like pop into my head when i uh, was watching margo play um it is interesting it is tough obviously for obvious reason to to find uh, comps. It's interesting that you mentioned uh, George Mirosan, because for me, it was the guy he's tied with the tallest player in NBA history being the Newt Bowl. I found, uh, I, I thought a lot more, a lot more uh, 
translatability there, given Manupol's well-documented off offensive struggles. Um, I would say, um, I don't know, probably a little better uh, of a time managing the fouls than uh, than either Marison or um, Didek, but it's interesting in, in that sense. Uh, the one on the women's side that, that I can best think of is um, like a reverse Han Shu. Like if you completely inverted Han Shu's game, that's I, I think that's the best way I could describe Mar Margot. And like based on this series and all the players we're going to discuss, Margot's one of the lower players on our list. But what made her an interesting discussion was lowest. just, yeah, it might be the lowest, but it's not every day you see someone that's 7-2 and the uniqueness of her skill set mm -hmm. is not talked about very often when you think about some of the best players to enter the league and the most intriguing players to enter the league at seven foot two. Like I'm not sure how long it'll be until we see another player that's seven foot two enter the league. And um because it's been years. We haven't seen anyone since. It's it, that that is like a that is less than a half of uh not less than half. That's that's over I I believe four standard deviations from the mean of uh, of, of height for a woman. So it, it wouldn't be shocking at all if it took basically another twenty five years from today to even basically have like someone who's seven foot. And again, the funniest thing, we mentioned the negative two wingspan before, but I want to put that in perspective. Uh Brianna Stewart stands at six foot three. She has a longer wingspan than Marco Didek did, which is wild literally almost a foot shorter what's also wild and something you don't see every day is you don't go to europe to watch uh what's going to be the number one pick play in the early game and then get resoundingly resoundedly outplayed uh which you know by someone on a winning on the winning team is better but she, but she gets outplayed by someone who has sort of been lost to to the history of women's basketball, at least in the States. And that's even Nemkova, I want to talk about for a second. Because even Nemkova in this game goes off. Wow. She uh, she, and one of her teammates tied for uh, a game high 21 points. And this is not even her best season in the league. Even Nemkova is someone who had been drafted actually the year before uh, in you know the Tina Thompson draft, which turned out to overall be not a good, not a particularly good draft. But even then, for a not particularly good draft, for one in which you have a bunch of a bunch of players who don't, you know, have the best resumes compared to, to the draft we're talking about today. The drafts we'll talk about in the future, especially a couple years after this one. This is someone who at age, I want to say it was age 23, won the European MVP award. She from basically her age uh, about her age 19 season, she was putting up 14 points a game in Euroleague play. From basically turning 21 until when her knees gave out, she averaged about 18 and a half to 19 points per game and about three assists per game, a steal and a half per game on absolutely ridiculous efficiency. She basically shot 45 from the field, 45 from three, and 88 from the line across her prime. She was in the W for about four seasons. In her first two seasons, she was an all WNBA first team selection and an all WNBA second team selection. She was the best player on a pretty good Cleveland Rockers team uh, that made some noise in the playoffs, even though they had first round exits. And at this point in time, it is basically impossible to find uh, evidence of her existence. Part of that reason is because basically midway through her fourth career, her fourth season in the W, uh, she suffered the first of what would become a number of severe uh, lower body injuries. It's hard to place exactly where they where they uh, 
occurred in terms of um, the time frame of that, because there's an Achilles tear in there, there's ACL tears multiple in there, there's hamstring issues that eventually force her retirement. But she has all of those injuries, first of all, that cut short her fourth WBA season. She comes back for two games the year later, which I should mention, she comes back for two games the year later alongside, uh, to play for Dan Hughes and to play alongside Penny Taylor, the rookie Penny Taylor, a weird confluence of WNBA events going on there. And then after taking some years off, she comes back for basically a couple months in Europe and she and she stops playing for, she's no longer playing for a French team. She goes back and she plays for for, for the Czech Republic again. The, that's where she's from. Uh, and she leads them to like, a, a, not a, she she is one of the players that helps, that helps lead them to this like miracle European championship run in 2005. The whole time her hamstring is killing her and she retires right after that at age, that, that would have basically been 33. 34, I think. And th and that's it. And again, this player who was two-time, who was an all-WMA selection in each of the first two seasons in a really mediocre draft in the WMA's first year of existence, goes fourth overall. By the next season, she is she is easily outplaying Margot Didek, who is going to go first overall in the following draft, on the same court that you have a bunch of scouts who should be watching, who should be going to. It's, the WNBA obviously has a lot of international stars and has had a lot of international stars and with prioritization rules and whatnot, you know, we, we've been seeing a lot of players get drafted, it's drafted in stashes in recent years. And increasingly there are some of the Europeans, Europe's best players who don't end up coming over to the States. And that's a problem these days, but it wasn't a, as huge of a problem back then if you, in terms of you know giving bringing them over to play here and having them come over for the few months that they'll be playing for the teams here and so it is even stranger to me that you have a player like even mkova who is such a known quantity in terms of what we can see in her short WNBA career the difference in scouting from then to now when you have a player right now like my, like maya hirsch who is quite young she's still a teenager but is a first round pick intended to not come over for another like year or two as a developmental player, comparing that to even Mkova, who won the European MVP in 1996, the year before she entered the draft, and still she only goes fourth. That probably wouldn't happen today. And I think it's one of the things that gets particularly interesting in terms of what we're looking for as professional scouts, not we, but the, the, the industry. Right, that's a good way to wrap it up. Um, and finally, what would you give like her scouting grade? Um, not just just in general, like her value, uh, value grade. But that's the funny part. Like I said, for two th for not for two thousand for ninety eight in watching Margot, that that's a forty five for me. Eva, especially given her age, I think that's that's an easy like sixty to seventy. Probably not a seventy, but higher than a sixty. Mm, okay. But um, thanks for making Locked Women's Basketball your first listen today. Now join us back for continued WNBA coverage next week. And we'll be talking about um, Tina Pinachero, one of the greatest passers of all time, Old Dominion star, and um, eventually played for the Sacramento Monarchs. So join us back next week. And top and top uh, player agent these days. Mm-hmm.